Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I just want to say, I think a lot of the discussion on faith and science seems to center on this idea that faith may seem, may seem to hinder good scientific thinking. However, it actually doesn't. Uh, faith, so people will say things like, faith isn't actually as bad for science as you might think. For, for example, okay, uh, we might have someone that has this challenge that says, the teachings of the church hinder reproductive health care. Then a Catholic might respond, actually, the church's teachings don't hinder true reproductive health care. Now, I believe that making the case that there's no true conflict between faith and science is good and worthy. But I also believe that if we stop there, we're missing a big part of the full picture and an opportunity to evangelize more effectively. Not only do we need to realize that faith and science are compatible, but we should be able to see how the Catholic faith has actually promoted major developments in science. Okay, I, I think that uh, one of the things I really liked about Dr. Samut's talk is he was actually kind of showing how a, a Catholic philosophy, a Catholic ethic, actually helps you understand neuroscience better. And that's the type of thing that we should all be looking for. And once we look for these developments and find them, we also need to share them. So today, let's see if this is going to work. But, okay, yeah. So today, I want to share an example of how, in particular, the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae should be praised for promoting what future generations will see as dramatic improvements in reproductive health care. In contrast, I'm going to try to show how a mentality that rejects humane vitae is actually slowing the progress of reproductive health care. So let's take a look at this. Now, many of you are probably already somewhat familiar with humane vitae, but for those of you who might not be, let's start with that. Okay? This was an encyclical that was put out by Pope Paul VI, you can see him right there, in about 1968. Okay? And during this time, the church was being confronted, being pressured to change its teaching that had been consistent for over 19 centuries more, depending on how you think about it, uh, against artificial contraceptives and against these fertility control measures. Well, not only did the encyclical not change, its, change the church's teaching, it solidified the church's stance against these artificial contraceptive measures and sterilization, these fertility control measures. Okay. Now, Pope Paul VI has actually been hailed as a prophet for not only solidifying this teaching, but predicting some of the negative consequences that would occur if these fertility control measures came into widespread use. Okay? So we thought, yeah, there would be a general lowering of morality. I, I think that we've been seeing that. He thought that there would be more conflict between, between spouses and that there would be more unfaithfulness. Okay, we've seen that in, in, in very dramatically recently in things like the Ashley Holt Madison case. Uh, he also predicted that there'd be decreased respect for women. I, I believe that we see a lot of that today also in abuses by the government. For example, uh, there 
the governments might push contraceptives on countries that don't want them, which is going on today with the UN pushing it on countries, especially in places like Africa, all right? Or uh, even governments in for promoting forced sterilizations on people, which has happened in the US in not too distant the past, and even forced and, and sterilizations and contraception uh, pushed on people without their knowledge, that, that type of thing is even going on today uh, by organizations that are here in the U.S. And, and is happening in other countries. Okay? So I think he was right. I think that it's good to point out that there are these negative consequences. But once again, I think we need to go farther and see what did this promote. So let's take a look at that. Hey, look at paragraph 16. One of the things that Humanity Vitae did is, not only did it say that these fertility control measures, these measures that look at our body as something to be subverted, we, we can't do that. We can't break the human body to space out births. Not only did it say that, but it also provided an encouragement. Okay? And it noted what would be okay. In our bodies, there are natural fertility rhythms, particularly in a woman's body. So when a couple comes together in conjugal union, sometimes that could result in a pregnancy, sometimes it couldn't. And in Humanae Vitae, it says that it's moral to actually take into account these natural rhythms that are present in the way that our bodies work, in our very natures, so that the couple can come together in conjugal union during infertile periods and thus potentially space out the birth of children, the conception of children. Okay, so, so he, he kind of promoted that. Now, a little bit further on, what he, uh, what he noted is that this is likely to have positive consequences. Okay, when he was referring to, uh, to efforts to be in line with this, he actually noted that these efforts to be in line with these teachings will ennoble man and can be beneficial to the human community. Uh, actually, Father Sean, I stole this because Father Sean noted this yesterday. I didn't have this in there, but yeah, you noted this yesterday. And then at the end of Humanae Vitae, the Pope put out directives. He put out these encouragements. I want to highlight two in particular to men of science and to doctors and medical personnel. Okay, uh, now these, in these pastoral directives, Basically, he encouraged doctors and medical personnel to take into account these natural fertility rhythms and deepen their understanding of them and use that knowledge of how we work so that now we can share that knowledge with the average person so that the average person can understand their bodies better, their reproductive systems better, and use that knowledge for regulating when children come. Okay. Now, if all that Humanae Vitae did was encourage the development of these types of techniques, if all Humanae, did, Humanae Vitae did was help us to understand our reproductive systems better and help get that knowledge out to the average person more effectively, that would already be a tremendous gift. Okay. Now, the, these, uh, that's what I believe at least. Now, these methods that take into account how our body works and try to work with them they have a number of different names. Uh, fertility awareness methods is one, uh, one name for this. That's the name that I actually prefer. Uh, however, the more commonly uh, understood name is natural family planning, or NFP. Now, 
If we actually look, so there was this encouragement of doctors to do this, and one example of a doctor that was directly inspired by this is Dr. Thomas Hilgers. Here he actually directly, directly notes that Humane Vitae inspired him in developing the Creighton model of NFP, the Creighton fertility awareness method. Okay, so we see, I think we can draw a very direct line between the development of NFP methods and Humane Vitae. And from these NFP methods, greater goods followed because one thing that uh, Dr. Thomas Soldiers and other doctors have been working on is actually taking this understanding of the human body and applying it to scientific research and, and medical applications. Now, one other note, okay, so if we're applying this to medical applications, well, what does that mean? Well, there's almost a whole philosophy in, in how someone inspired by Humane Vitae would do this. To illustrate this a little bit better, I actually, let me get to that next slide in a moment. To illustrate this a little bit better, I wanna kinda of talk about a, a vision that some people have about what the church teaches about our bodies and the sexual union, okay? Some people have this idea that what the church teaches about the sexual union is that it's the most dirty, disgusting, terrible, horrible thing that you can do, so you better save it for the one person you love the most. <laughs> All right, there, there would be something a little silly about that, right? I think I had that understanding for a long time. But uh, if you actually look at the church's teaching, look at the theology of the body, look at the catechism, it actually notes things like the fact that the human body actually shares in the dignity of the image of God. Our human bodies, our, the sexual interaction is a good and even holy thing. So it's important how we use it and that we not use it incorrectly. Now someone who's inspired by this vision and by Humane Vitae will look at the body as something that's good, the reproductive system as something that's good, and when there's a defect in it, that person will seek to heal it, repair it, and help it to overcome any issues. They'll try to work with how the human body works and make it work better. Now, on the other hand, if we have uh, somebody who has more of, a, say, a contraceptive approach, an approach that's not in union with Humane Vitae, and they, they take that approach toward the reproductive system, they'll see things like our fertility, our reproductive system, as a potential obstacle, a problem, maybe a disease, a thing to be suppressed, subverted, overcome, or destroyed, at the very least, ignored. Now, the practical effects of this distinction, I think, can be illustrated if we make a comparison between a contraceptive approach to treating infertility, one that's not in union with Humana Vitae, versus an approach that's in union with Humana Vitae. Now, before I can get to that, I have to review some details of fertility, okay, and, and the normal fertility and marital act. Now, at birth, a woman is born with around 2 million potential eggs. Okay, 2 million potential fertile fertility cells. During each of her fertility cycles, here in the oocyte, what's gonna happen is up to about 50 of these eggs may begin development, and they each kind of compete, but only one becomes dominant and is eventually released. That's what we're seeing right there. Over a woman's lifetime, only a few hundred of these eggs will ever be released. In other words, if you do the math on this, only about 1% of 1% of those original 2 million eggs will ever have any opportunity to potentially become a new human being. Now, why are so many of these cells created if such a small number have an opportunity to ever become a new organism? This tremendous winnowing process may be a selection process that ensures that only the healthiest eggs will ever eventually be released. 
In turn, if you have a healthy egg, that increases the probability that a healthy organism will result from fertilization. If we look at the sperm, on the other hand, we have a similar process, okay? When a husband and wife come together in conjugal union, it's normal for hundreds of millions of sperm to enter the vaginal area, which is this area right here, okay? About 90% of the sperm die before they get any farther. You have to have a healthy sperm that, in order to survive, okay? They move up through this area of the cervix, up through the rest of the womb, they, uh, they get to the top of the womb, and then, they, uh, and then the oocyte is only on one side or the other, so they have to make a decision, go one way or the other. The ones that choose the wrong tube never figure it out because they don't stop to ask for directions, okay? <laughs> Now eventually, uh, the sperm that actually reach the oocyte, there are only about hundreds to thousands that reach the oocyte. This is of the original maybe hundreds of millions. Once again, if you do the math on this, this translates to less than 1% of 1% of the original sperm that were released ever making it anywhere near the egg. Once again, this reduction in sperm numbers is probably a selection process. There, there's actually selection of sperm by the female reproductive tract in order to ensure that only a healthy sperm can get anywhere near the oocyte. And therefore, if only healthy sperm get near the oocyte, that once again increases the probability that a healthy organism results when the sperm and the egg come together. Now with these details established, I think we're ready to look at potential treatments for infertility. And we're looking at infertility treatments. I think uh, we could imagine that there's this couple that's really been trying to have a child uh, you know, having, having these, I think, you know, very sad struggles. And they're trying to think, how can, we, how can we overcome this infertility issue? And I think that the first thing that will pop into a lot of couples' minds is, maybe we could try IVF. So let's look at that technique first. Okay, here's uh, overall the, the kind of outline of the IVF process. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to take those ovaries of a woman and hyperstimulate them to produce multiple, multiple oocytes, multiple eggs. And then we're going to take those multiple eggs out of the ovary. All right. Now notice that this is different from the way that the normal fertility system works. Okay? The ovaries are hyperstimulated instead of stimulated at a normal level, and then we're harvesting multiple eggs instead of the one that's normally released. Now we have the eggs, so now we need sperm. Okay, we need to get a, the sperm from the male. Usually the way that this works is the male is sent to a room with magazines and videos of ill repute. And then he looks at these images of women who are not his wife and stimulates himself to these images in order to collect a sperm sample. So now we have the sperm. And then we have to bring these two together somehow. And, and one thing I want to note is that when we bring these two together, there are a number of ways to do it. One way is to take one of those sperm and inject it directly into the egg. So now a technician has to choose what does he think is the best sperm, put it into the egg. Another way is to just essentially pour a bunch of sperm on top of the egg. Now notice, when we combine these two cells in this way, once again, this is different from natural reproduction because we're, we're not uh, taking advantage of that natural selection process that occurs in the female reproductive system. So let's say that this technician is pretty good. He can, he can find the best 1% of sperm and use that. He's still about 100 times off of what the natural fertility system can do. So from here, we've got the sperm and oocyte together. At that point, 
we, we have our new human organism, we let it develop for about five days. Okay? That point, uh, at that point, we have to decide what do we do with these organisms. We'll take the ones that we want to use for reproduction, put them into the womb. The ones that we don't want, we'll actually put them into a liquid nitrogen container, store them away for later, uh, potentially indefinitely, uh, just in case this technique doesn't work and we want to try again. Now, if you look at this technique, okay, first off, we're, we're basically breaking the way that the reproductive system works. We're going outside of it in multiple ways. So this would be an approach that's more in line with the contraceptive mentality, not in union with Humanae Vitae, all right? In addition, one thing that Humanae Vitae says is that within the conjugal union, there's a procreative aspect and there's a unitive aspect, this bonding aspect, and that these two things should be together. Here we have this procreative aspect, but it's achieved entirely outside of conjugal union, so we don't have that unitive aspect in there united with this. So once again, this would be an approach not in union with Humanae Vitae. Now, many people from here would say, okay, if this is not in union with Humanae Vitae, well, so much the worse for Humanae Vitae. IVF is a positive outcome of the contraceptive mentality. It's a masterpiece of reproductive science. Now that, that's an impression I think that a lot of people have, but I believe that the success rates of in vitro fertilization suggest otherwise. Typically, in vitro fertilization costs somewhere between ten dollars to $20,000 per attempt. The success rate that you get out of this ten dollars to $20,000 is about a 30% success rate. You have three couples that try this, two of them, it's not successful at all. All right, that's not a very good success rate. Now the surprising thing is that this success rate is stunningly poor even when compared to treatments available decades ago. So right here, uh, I have a little bit of data on this. Um, my mom is a nurse, and a while ago I was uh, visiting my folks, and in their library I found this maternity nursing textbook published in 1971. So I got really excited. Uh, <laughs> Why is that funny? Okay, I got excited because I thought, oh man, I got to look in that and I've got to see what they knew about fertility, how would they were treating it. So I opened up to uh, page 63 and I found something that I thought was fascinating. In here it said, it is estimated that at least 30% of barren marriages can be rendered fertile. So I think the interesting thing is, is that from this textbook, that suggests that the success rate of IVF today is actually similar to the success rate that we had in 1971 in overcoming infertility. Now if we look at the dates, okay, 1971, it's about, uh, that's over 30, uh, 30 years ago, even farther than that. The first birth of IVF was in 1978, so the first birth from IVF was over 30, 35 years ago. That means that after 35 years of development of IVF, it's still only about as good as techniques we had in 1971. Okay. Not only that, but we can see this, uh, we, we can see this in other ways if we compare IVF to different, uh, to different techniques for specific causes of infertility. So right here I have three graphs, one uh, showing success rates for treating infertility if it's due to tubal factors, endometriosis, or polycystic ovaries. The bars on the left are IVF in either 2009 or 2010, and the bars on the right are techniques from 1979 or 1981 for overcoming infertility. And what we can see is that IVF is really only as successful or worse 
than these techniques that we had from 1979 or 1981. Now, there are a couple caveats I should make. So th this right here makes IVF look really bad, and I think that it really, it's not that good, okay? If we look at this, I think that we have to say that the contraceptive mentality that has caused a focus on IVF in terms of reproductive science, reproductive healthcare, has either caused it to stagnate or possibly even go backwards in some cases. But there are some caveats I should make, okay? So these, uh, in these studies, we didn't have a completely unified population, okay? So it could be that, uh, that there were differences between the population and that if we did a more rigorous experiment, we'd see different results. Now that being said though, at least from a Catholic perspective, there's no ethical way to do that experiment. So according to the best evidence that we have and the best evidence that we can get in a moral way at this point, IVF just really is not that good. Now, how does an approach in union with Humanae Vitae fare in comparison? Okay, let's take a look at this. Uh, in order to understand this, let me just kind of give a brief outline of the approach. So an, out, an approach uh, to reproductive healthcare in union with Humanae Vitae, well, a lot of these approaches will use the knowledge of NFP, of how our bodies work, of these fertility awareness methods, and then use that to guide what they're doing. So right here, these are two different charts, two different fertility charts, where we're looking at a woman's fertility cycle. The, the red and green areas basically indicate infertile times. Then there are these little baby stamps. And those indicate fertile times, basically times when conjugal union could result in a baby. Oh, difficult to figure out. Okay, good. Uh, now, on the left here, we've got a normal cycle. On the right here, this is not a normal cycle. Now, you don't need a whole lot of training to figure out there's something different about this one. There's no baby stamps. This, when this couple comes together in conjugal union, it's going to be tough to have a baby. Now, those who are trained in, in reading these types of charts will know that this is very, very likely from this chart, there's a defect in estrogen levels and there is a defect in progesterone levels. Now, if we actually look at the hormonal levels in uh, both these cases, here's the normal fertility cycle. Estrogen is in black and you can see we have this nice rise in estrogen. Progesterone is in red and we see we have this nice rise in progesterone, so this person Normal, normal uh, cycle that we're seeing from their chart, that, indi that is indicating normal hormone levels. In this other chart, however, uh, we are predicting low estrogen and progesterone, and indeed this patient has low estrogen, low progesterone. If we have that knowledge, we can use that to target our treatment and try to restore those levels, try to bring the fertility back to what it should be. So let's take a look at the success rates of this. Here I have a few different graphs of this. First one uh, over here, I'll, I'll point out. So we have three NFP, uh, NFP methods are over here, that's their success rate, and then IVF per attempt is right here. Now, here I say NFP 0, 1, and 2. 0, 1, and 2 are how many times a couple has attempted IVF and then failed before they tried this NFP-based method. And I think the interesting thing is, okay, if we just look at a couple that's trying an NFP-based method without ever trying IVF, they're a lot more likely to get pregnant and have a successful birth than if they try IVF. However, even if we take a couple with much more challenging reproductive outcomes where they've tried IVF twice and IVF has failed twice, right here, it still appears that these NFP-based methods are better than IVF. Okay, this is, this is amazing to me. Now, another way of thinking about this is we could say, okay, uh, 
you know, sure, it costs ten to $20,000 to try IVF once, but maybe I just have lots of millions of dollars lying around. So what if I try IVF and it fails and I try it again and again and again and again? And I get, maybe my success rate would be better. And that's true. If you try IVF repeatedly, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 dollars repeatedly, uh, the success rate seen here is better than in one IVF attempt. I think the crazy thing is though, that if you look at the NFP-based methods, they're actually still better at achieving pregnancy than repeated attempts of IVF. Now, why is this? Well, once again, in the IVF kind of contraceptive-based mentality, we're not looking at the reproductive system and trying to heal it. We just have a goal of achieving a pregnancy, of achieving a birth, and however we do that, if we have to destroy the reproductive system on the way, that's okay. So, in an IVF mentality, one that's not in union with Humanae Vitae, we don't really try to see what the underlying problem is. In fact, one of the advantages that's often touted of IVF is you don't actually have to know what's wrong with the couple. And as a result, those who use, who go to an IVF doctor to try to achieve fertility, they have a much higher rate of having that doctor say, we don't know what the cause of infertility is. Whereas those who are using NFP-based methods who are going to a doctor trained in that way that's trying to understand the reproductive system and use that to help the couple achieve infertility, very rarely does the couple come away with the doctor saying, I don't know what's causing your infertility. Now to a certain extent, so I, I think that this looks bad for IVF and, and these methods that go against Humanae Vitae, but to a certain extent this is actually even worse than it looks because the NFP-based methods to a certain extent are the only ones that treat fertility, infertility at all. And the reason I say this is, let's say we have a couple that uses IVF and, uh, and it's completely successful. What will happen? The couple will now have a baby, but will still be infertile. If there was an underlying problem of endometriosis, say in the wife, that was causing a lot of pain, the couple has a baby, but that woman now still has endometriosis, still has that pain. Whereas let's say that an NFP-based method is completely successful. What will happen is the couple will have a baby and will be fertile. Okay? If there was endometriosis, maybe now it's gone. Maybe that pain is gone now. Now, not only that, uh, if we, we can uh, look at other factors, because, um, because these NFP-based methods achieve fertility within the context of the conjugal union, within the way the reproductive system is designed to work, if you actually look at IVF, there are a lot of different risks of IVF, okay? There's an increase, compared to normal conjugal union, there's an increased chance of a a multiple pregnancy, uh, twins, triplets, or higher order multiples. You don't see that with NFP-based methods. There's an increased chance of something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, because IVF hyperstimulates the ovaries way farther than they ever need to be stimulated. You don't see that with NFP-based methods, because while they may stimulate the ovaries, they just stimulate it to a normal level. We also see uh, higher, higher incidences of preeclampsia, ectopic pregnancy, and birth defects in IVF-based methods that we don't see in NFP-based methods. Once again, probably due to the way that this IVF process goes outside of and actually breaks the reproductive system. So, I think once again that this really suggests that these approaches not in union with Humanae Vitae have really held back reproductive health care, caused it to go backwards, whereas these approaches that are in union with it 
are pushing it forward. Okay. Now, there's been similar success in diagnosing and treating uh, multiple different pathologies like miscarriages, polycystic ovaries, uh, endometriosis, PMS, even male infertility using these NFP-based approaches. Okay, and there are many other conditions that they can help with. I believe that NFP-based approaches are revolutionizing reproductive healthcare, even though there are many people, including doctors, who still don't know about them. This is an amazing gift that the church is giving to the world, and it's been built on the foundation of Humanae Vitae. We as Catholics should be proud of this gift to science and humanity, and we should be looking for and sharing these types of stories. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.